This morning, our scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, to begin with this morning, uh, I just was, was thinking about, as I was preparing this, this message, was thinking about a, a time last summer when uh, Rachel and I were, actually it would have been two summers ago, uh, we were thinking about planting a garden in our uh, backyard. We have a little garden plot, and uh, I, I realized this going into it, but, but I kind of felt the reality of this statement that, that gardens don't weed themselves. And, and, and you probably knew that. I thought I knew that in, in theory, but I found out in practice um, that it, gardens really, they don't weed themselves. And, and we have, like I said, the small garden plot. It was the summer before Lucy was going to be born. And we had all these plans to, to plant this garden. We came back from vacation and it was right about the time we needed to start putting all the seeds and plants into the ground. And Rachel was, was pregnant. She just was so sick. And so we missed it. We didn't get a chance to plant the garden. But that doesn't mean that nothing uh, didn't grow in that space uh, that summer. And kind of by April, May, these small weeds started appearing in the, because we had prepared the soil. It was great for those weeds. They were loving it. Uh, by, by June and July, they had grown to be, I don't know, maybe a foot, foot and a half tall. Um, by September, when I finally got around to clearing the garden plot out, a lot of them were taller than I was. And uh, it took hours of backbreaking work to clear this garden plot. I think I had about seven or eight lawn waste bags full of, of weeds by the time I was done. And the entire time I was there working on that, I kept thinking if I'd only pulled these things when they were an inch tall um, rather than six feet tall. And it would have taken me far less time. They would have filled probably less than half of a yard waste bag. Um, and, and I wouldn't have had, you know, an entire day wasted doing this. You see, little problems can turn into big problems before we know it. 
which is why Paul in this section of his letter calls each of us individually uh, as well as collectively to deal with sin or it will deal with us. We have to deal with sin or it will deal with us. But, but the trouble is when we discover sin in our own lives or in the lives of our, those in our community, the temptation is just sort of to let it slide. Because after all, the church is all about love and grace, right? I mean, who are we to call people out? Especially people we like, our friends. I mean, who are we to judge? I mean, isn't it easier, isn't it safer just to sort of let things work themselves out, just to kind of let them run their course? But the thing is, is there's no place where self-deception is more powerful, more pervasive, more perilous than when it comes to the sin in our lives that's rooted in our hearts. And that's why Paul has been challenging us throughout the four chapters of this letter that we not to be deceived, to be aware of the things that are going on in our own hearts and in the lives of our community because nothing deceives us like sin. We pride ourselves in how progressive we are, but nothing destroys us like sin. And nothing destroys a church like being okay with it. So Paul says, don't be deceived. If you don't deal with sin, it will deal with you. And throughout the next several chapters, Paul is going to address some of the situations that had just gotten completely out of control in Corinth, uh, this first century city. This kind of, it was a thriving Greco-Roman metropolis. And, and this week, we're going to look at the messy situation that Susan read for us in the text. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about Christians who were, um, they were defrauding one another and then suing one another, taking one another to court. And then after that, uh, we're going to look at some theological excuses they were making for visiting prostitutes. Um, so it's going to be a great uh, next couple of weeks. Um, I said, I don't actually have to make the introductions all that interesting. I think we just read the text and people are going to be like, huh, what, what's he going to say about this? Um, so you may be thinking, but isn't Paul blowing this all out of proportion a little bit? But don't be deceived. If we don't deal with sin, it will deal with us. So sin ought to break our hearts. We're going to see that sin is contagious and it's destructive. And then we're going to see that sin must be dealt with. That's what Paul's going to kind of walk us through in these verses this morning. That We have to deal with it. So first we see in the text that sin should break our hearts. But instead of grieving, the Corinthian church is actually boasting. If you look at the first two verses of the chapter that Susan read for us, Paul says it's, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind not even tolerated among the pagans, among the Gentiles. For a man has his father's wife. And he says, and you're arrogant? Are you not rather mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. And when you read this text, it, this is like something right out of a Woody Allen movement, or, or really out of Woody Allen's life, for that matter. Um, and, and, and I love Woody Allen, but I mean, this is, this is kind of a, a right on uh, for something he'd make a film about. And if you're a stepmom or a stepson here, I'm sorry, this is going to get a little weird uh, this morning. Um, but a grown man in the church is, has, is he's sexually involved with his father's wife. And throughout the first four chapters of this letter, Paul has been making the case that the Corinthians, they're puffed up, they're arrogant, they're blind, they're immature. And now in chapter 5, it's almost as if Paul is turning the page and saying, look here, in short, this situation happening in your midst, this is example A, that you are deceived, that you're arrogant, and that you're immature. 
Because even those who didn't claim any sort of allegiance at all to any sort of a Judeo or Christian framework of flourishing or, or moral order, even they were rejecting this sort of thing. And just to be clear, I mean, if you're familiar with the Greco-Roman culture at this time, you, you know this is not a culture that was prudish. This is not a sexually repressed culture at all. And even they were disapproving of what was happening here. I think sometimes we as Christians tend to, to think that we live in this sort of unprecedented time of, of moral ambiguity or permissiveness. But really, there's nothing new under the sun. And in fact, the church was, was birthed at, indeed it grew and it flourished at a time in the Roman Empire where, where prostitution was accepted as the normal part of life, where it was common for men to molest young boys, where there were orgies, even places where rape was considered permissible at times. There's nothing new here that we're facing. But, even, but when this situation came up, I mean, he, he, the Romans were sort of like to, to invoke SNL, the ladies' man. They're like, yeah, that's disgusting. I mean, that was sort of where they were going. Even for them, this is beyond the pale. But, but don't miss this. Paul is not shocked that the sin is happening. He's not surprised by sin in the church, and neither should we. I mean, I mean, look around at the group of us here. We should not be surprised that there's sin here. Every one of the people who calls this church home, I mean, they've raised their hand, they self-selected and said, look, I'm so bad off, I'm so broken, so messed up that it took the God of the universe becoming a man, dying on a cross, rising again from the dead to rescue and restore me. So we shouldn't ever be surprised when we find sin in the church. This is a place where, where sinners are coming for refuge. So the sin is not what shocks Paul, and it's, it shouldn't shock us. What shocks Paul is that they're okay with it. That's the issue. There's going to be sin that happens in our own lives, in the midst of our congregation. That shouldn't surprise us, but we should never be okay with it. But they were proud. They were abusing God's grace. They were refusing to deal with it. When instead they should have been mourning they, they should have felt like someone had died, like this was something massively wrong. And instead, they're arrogant. It's actually, it's so interesting, isn't it, that today, if, if we label something as sin, um, or if someone calls us out for the junk in our own life, that we call them arrogant. But, but Paul says it's just the opposite. When we ignore sin, he says, that's when we're being arrogant. And then Paul writes something that really rubs us the wrong way, or at least it rubs me the wrong way. He says, let the person doing this be removed from among you. I mean, it sounds so extreme, doesn't it? What do we do with that? Why would Paul be so extreme to say that? Well, we see it in verses 3 through 8, this kind of next section, that because sin is so destructive and so contagious... And in the first uh, section here, in verses 3 through 5, we, Paul points out just how destructive sin is. He writes, For though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as, and as if present. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He said, When assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. 
That's positive encouraging this morning. Um, now, there are two things in this section that are, are difficult to wrap our minds around. And, and Paul being present with them in the spirit when he's not physically there, uh, away from a distance, in some ways that's actually the easier of the two to deal with, um, at least from a sensibility standpoint. And we don't know exactly what it meant that Paul was present with them in the spirit, but, but it likely means that the Corinthian church gathered together, you know, Paul there with a dis, from a distance, sort of in the spiritual sense, and the power of Jesus all working together, saying that's what, what's happening. All those three components together are condemning the actions of the individual. And, and translation scholars point out that, that power here, that language of power refers to Jesus' authority, rather than some sort of supernatural power that Paul and the Corinthians are trying to manipulate. So really, you could translate that, that first part of the verse along these lines. When you meet together, and I am with you in my thoughts, through the authority of our Lord Jesus, that's the first part, but it's what comes next. This is the second thing that's really hard to wrap our minds around, what Paul writes after that. He says, so when you come together, when you meet together, I'm with you, meeting with there in my thoughts, through the authority of our Lord Jesus, then you're to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that he may, his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to pretend this morning that I know exactly what that verse means, um, that it, I can understand completely what he means by turning him over to Satan, but I think there are three things we need to not miss in that verse. First is just simply the reality of malevolent supernatural forces that exist in the world. You see, as modern Western people, we tend to have what Charles Taylor refers to as a buffered self. That is, whether we're Christians or not, our default position is to view ourselves as being separated, sort of buffered from any sort of forces from the outside of us being able to affect us in any way. We tend to view ourselves living in a closed world where if there does happen to be God or some immaterial being at all, it is distant and uninvolved. This is the default setting for us, a buffered self. But this puts us in the vast minority of people, certainly historically and even around the world today, who would acknowledge that there is an immaterial realm that's very real. And are we prepared to say that they've completely missed it and are completely wrong? Paul is clear that there is an immaterial reality that exists and is just as real as this lectern in front of me or the pew underneath you. And second, while I don't know exactly what it means to be handed over to Satan, um, Paul doesn't really spell it out here. What I do know is that it can't be good. This is not a good thing. And, and secondly, when they're asking him to, to relieve this congregation, it's not like today in Kansas City where this guy can just go walk down the street to another church. I mean, there's, this is the only church in Corinth. This is the only Christian community in the city, and being removed from that is going to hurt. And third, it's also absolutely clear that the reason for this is for the person's good. The goal is restoration, salvation, rescue. The goal isn't ultimately punitive, but restorative. We can't miss that. The goal of this action isn't ultimately punitive, but restorative. We want to be loving, don't we? And we think that that means ignoring sin. But ignoring sin might actually be the most unloving thing we can do. You see, sin is rebellion against the God who made us. It's a refusal to trust 
And trust in Jesus is the only thing that can rescue us. It's the only thing that can save us. Not how well you avoid the big sins, not not how often you come to church, but faith in Christ and faith in him alone. But if you're entrenched in a lifestyle of sin, let me just pause here and say, there's a difference between being entrenched in a lifestyle of sin and battling sin. There's a difference between fighting sin and wallowing sin. Every Christian is going to battle sin and temptation for their entire life. But wallowing in sin reveals a heart that wants nothing to do with Jesus. A heart destined for an eternity separated from him. And imagine that you're in a burning building and as you're moving to evacuate, you, you notice someone sleeping, oblivious to the peril. And you say, well, I, I don't want to wake them up. I don't want to be rude. I'm, I'm sure they know what's best. I'm sure they've got an alarm set or something. They'll, they'll, who am I to wake them up? Now you may be thinking, but, but Bill, this is, this is sin we're talking about here. This is not a burning building. This isn't life or death. But don't you see I so often forget, I don't see. Don't we see that that is exactly what it is? This is what everyone dies from. Death wouldn't exist if not for sin. And every kind of sin is a sort of small death that leads to an ultimate death. You see, we have to deal with sin or it will deal with us. So sin is destructive, but it's also contagious. And, and Paul gets at this with sort of a, a baking metaphor. We've used, seen him use farming metaphors, and now he employs a baking metaphor. He says, your boasting is not good, in verse 6. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Probably didn't think that you'd ever be referred to as a new lump on a Sunday morning, but that's what Paul's metaphor is here. As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So there's a lot of metaphors for the church. This was a new one for me. Paul refers to us as a lump, um, a lump of dough. And, And what's going on here? Well, leaven was fermented dough. Sometimes we think of it as yeast. But it really is a lump of dough, fermented dough that you would save for the next bag. Have you ever made sort of that Amish friendship bread that someone gives you in like a Ziploc bag? You ever pass this stuff around? Like, where's this coming from? I don't know what's going on here. But you, um, you're, it's always a little sketchy, I feel like. Uh, <clears throat> but th- that's what the leaven was. It's this little leftover dough this, that you would use to start a new, a new batch. But if that little lump got polluted, every lump of dough you would make, every batch of dough you made would be contaminated all the way through. You have to start over. And the leaven would literally cause the bread to puff up, to rise. And this is, you know, Paul's kind of using this as a picture of of the Corinthians' own sort of puffed up ego. And once it gets worked into the dough, there's, there's no going back. And we know that, right? I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to see how sin spreads Like a cancer left untreated, it spreads, it devours, it destroys. So Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven, start fresh. I mean, whether it's it's a measles outbreak in California, Ebola in West Africa, we understand the peril of letting a contagion get out of control. A little thing can become a big thing really fast. But also notice Paul in this verse doesn't call them to be something they're not. 
Rather, he calls them to be more true to who they are. He says, you need to be a new lump as you are unleavened. They are the new lump. This is Paul's whole point. The very You are saints. You have been rescued. You are being sanctified. He says, go back to who you truly are. This, this unleavened, this sin, this is not who you truly are anymore. Be who you are, which is this new lump of dough. In other words, they need to deal with the sin that is threatening to undermine the glory and goodness of Jesus and bring it into place. But what does that even mean? I mean, this, this good news was threatened to be undermined by the sin that's happening. But, but how does this actually work? So it's like, okay, Bill, like I get it. This is, this is important. This is, this is deadly. But, but how do we deal with it? What does it look like to deal with that at our church? I mean, do we just kick everybody out, including ourselves? Is that, is that what happens? Well, look at what Paul writes next. This is beginning in verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter. This is a letter we don't actually have. This is a letter he wrote before he wrote 1 Corinthians. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he clarifies, not at all meaning the sexual moral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who names the, the, bears the name brother or sister who's, who calls himself a Christian if he is engaged in uh, sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, Paul says? It's not though, is it not those in the inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. It's a quote from Deuteronomy. Okay, well, hopefully that makes it clear uh, what we're supposed to do. Oh, wait, so it doesn't. Actually, you're probably more confused and a little unsettled now. Um, I am too, and I think this is exactly where Paul and the Spirit wants us. He's feeling a little unsettled in this moment. So how do we make sense of this? Well, first we need to remember that the goal here is restoration and protection for the individual person and for the community as a whole. And second, we understand that this verse, these verses, in, in the context of three key relationships, and, and the first relationship we need to consider as we think about these verses is the relationship to ourself. And this is where we all need to start Jesus reminds us of this in the Sermon on the Mount, that you have to take the plank out of your own eye before you can even expect to help someone remove the speck in their eye. So the first question for each one of us to ask is, is what sins are killing you? Or at least have that potential. Because this isn't just about some weird relationship with someone's stepmom. Any sexual sin, greed, idolatry, being a reviler, that's being someone who's a slanderer or a gossip, a drunkard, a cheat, all these things, they are in grave peril. They put our souls in grave peril. And these sins, many of us just assume are normal. I mean, how we love to harp on the sins that are sort of out there, while things like greed or gossip flourish in here. If sin thrives in your heart, you are destroying yourself and, and every relationship you're in. And it not only affects you, it affects your whole church family. 
God says that it's not okay to sleep with your boyfriend or to live together. It's, it's not okay to look at or to read pornography. I, I've recently this week just been convicted of, of how quickly I go to sexual innuendo to get a laugh in a group of friends or colleagues. I mean, how often do we indulge in, in little gossiping to pass the time with friends? Or how often do we let the greed and materialism go unchecked in our lives? And in many ways, greed and materialism are much, much harder to, to understand, to know when we're engaging in them. They're a lot easier to let go unchecked because, right, when we think about this, it's much harder to tell when you're being greedy. I mean, when, when you're sleeping with your stepmom, it's pretty clear, right? It's not like you wake up and say, oh, wait a second, you're not my wife, you're my stepmom. I mean, you, you know when you're doing that. It's not as though you finished watching a pornographic movie and thought, oh, wait, was, I thought that was the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> when we're committing those kinds of sins, it's completely obvious, right? We're not deceiving ourselves. But when it comes to greed and materialism, it's much more difficult to understand when are we being materialistic? When are we keeping up with the Joneses? When are we living beyond our means? Or are we truly living within our means and working to create margin for giving and serving with our resources? You see, sin, whether it's obvious or not, is not okay. And before we look at them, whoever they are out there, and complain about them and point to all their mistakes, we have to look back in the mirror and come to grips with the fact that, that my sin is not okay. Before we talk about confronting others, we have to ask, am I confrontable? Have I given people permission in my life to call me out, to tell me I'm messing up, to say, look, this is not right. And in the moment, right, like, I'll, I'll not enjoy that. I might be even respond in anger. But please, right, we need people who have permission in our lives to say, this is not right. This is not right. Are, are you fighting sin with confession, with repentance, spiritual disciplines, prayer, scripture reading, Bible memorization? I mean, giving people uh, the ability to call us out in, in our lives. I mean, this is such an important place. This is one of the reasons why, why we, we think church membership is so important. Because when you're a member, you're, you're explicitly giving your church family the, that right to say, look, this is not right in your life. By God's grace and, and hopefully with his grace, we can call one another out for one another's good. We start with ourselves. That's the first key relationship. Second, when it comes to outsiders, the, the posture we ought to have is one of just oozing grace. And, and for those of you here this morning who aren't Christians, we are so glad that you're here. I'm so thrilled that you are here this morning. And, and Paul makes it clear that, that we as Christians are to look at your sins very differently than our own. And, and I'm so sorry for the ways that we have, as a church, as the church, have blown it sometimes. I mean, sometimes Christians really are the worst. And it's not that your sins don't matter. Sin is destructive wherever it's found, whether you're a believer or non-believer. And Paul's clear, God will judge. But so many times we as the church come across, so like, it's not like Bill O'Reilly talking about Nancy Pelosi. I mean, it's just not pretty. 
we have to learn, we have so much to learn. And I really am, if, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I really am sorry for the posture that the church has taken towards you sometimes. We love you. And we just don't want you to miss out on something better. So, so no matter who you are this morning, no matter what you deal with, I want you to know that we as a church family will love you. We will pursue you. We will hang out with you. We will defend you. We will protect you. We want to meet you where you are because that's exactly where Jesus met us. For those of us who are Christians, don't, don't ever forget that is exactly where Jesus met you. And third, and this is the, the toughest one, for insiders, for those of us who are Christians, we need to love until it hurts. We need lots of help here, right? I mean, kick him out of the church. That's what Paul's calling them to do. Don't eat with them. I mean, this is extreme stuff. And this is where it's important to keep in mind that this is a case study, not a universal command. Paul's addressing a very specific situation in a specific church and culture. And to assume that Paul means for us to do exactly the same thing in every situation, it's just unfounded. That's not, that's not what the text is teaching. When we see case studies like this in Scripture, as opposed to clear commands, it doesn't get us off the hook. So don't hear me saying that. But what it does is it forces us to think through principle rather than one-size-fits-all rules. We have to ask, what is Paul's goal? And what would accomplish that same goal today? So what is Paul trying to do here in this church? And what would accomplish that, that same goal here today? Well, his goal is clear. The restoration of this person we can't lose sight of that. That Paul is desperate. This person would wake up and see the destructive path that he's on and return to Christ. And second is the protection of the church. That, that sin spreads and outsiders looking in need to see Jesus, not some guy sleeping with his stepman. This is a, a stepmom. This is a major distraction to what the church is to be about. So what restores and protects today? Would, would kicking someone out of the church actually restore them? And possibly, I mean, there are certain situations, I mean, in the history of Christ's community where, where that, we've had to have those kinds of conversations. But, but all too often, in a culture like ours, the individual's not going to change with that approach. They'll just go to the church that's two doors down, or they'll just stop coming to church altogether. What is that solved? But how could this possibly be loving? I mean, that's another question. Is, is, can, is there a way to do this lovingly? I mean, are we just a place that's going to shoot our wounded? And if, if you've been a part of toxic church cultures in the past, you may have seen this done really, really poorly. You may even carry some wounds from that. But there's a big difference between being shunned and being disciplined. And we don't shun people. Shunning has no desire for relationship or for the good of the individual. But discipline... That's really important. And we know children need to be disciplined because often they can't see far enough to understand the consequences of what they're doing, right? They can't always process the danger they're in or the path they're on. And we, we know that's true with children. But what we forget is that we don't ever grow out of that as people. Because there's always consequences that we can't anticipate we never grow out of, of needing other people to speak into our lives. And, and frankly, the older that we get, the more dangerous our choices become, the more dramatic ramifications they have, and, and the blinder we often get 
And so the, the louder than the alarm needs to be to wake us up. I mean, a 30-second timeout for a woman about to abandon her family just doesn't have the same effect anymore. So even when it hurts, but the goal is always love. Paul Tripp, who is always convicting when he writes, he says this, and it just it hit me so, so hard this week. He said, the truth is that we fail to confront not because we love others too much, but because we love ourselves too much. Let me read that again. The truth is that we fail to confront, not because we love, our, we love others too much, but because we love ourselves too much. I mean, deep down, we're, we're afraid of, of how we'll be perceived or of being rejected or feeling uncomfortable. But that's not good enough for the kind of community that Jesus is, is creating, the kind of church he's building. So how do we confront today? What does this actually look like in, in the life of a church like Christ Community? And we don't have it all figured out, but here's just five sort of quick guidelines, five quick ideas for how this works. Uh, first, we have to seek to understand the situation. So before we do any kind of confronting, really seek to understand what's going on. Because not every sin is the same, not every sinner is the same. For example, is the person fighting their sin or are they wallowing in their sin? Are they a new believer or should they know better by now? How public is the sin? How immediate and disastrous are the consequences? There's sort of no one-size-fits-all, so we have to really understand what's going on first. Second, you have to check your heart. So what are your motives in confronting someone? Are you just irritated with them? Are you grossed out? Or are you secretly envious? Are you self-righteous? Or is it truly out of love for this person? Because listen to how Paul summarizes this in another letter, his letter to the Galatian church. So Paul's not just trying to be a jerk. He writes, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in transgression and sin, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watching yourself lest you be tempted to. He says, do this with a spirit of gentleness. Third, confront with love and humility. I mean, every one of us will stand before God and, and not one of us can stand before him on our own two feet. We each have a role to play in the lives of each other and in the context of trust. And in a church like ours, one of the best places for these kind of conversations to happen is in community groups because it's there that you get to, to really know one another as you live together and build trust with one another. And then that provides the context where you're able to have hard conversations. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, um, if you have something like this happening, start by going to the person one-on-one. -on -one. And if you're ignored, maybe bring one or two others. And if still ignored, bring, then bring a larger church within, a larger group within the church. But the goal is always restoration. Fourth, another idea here is, is the power of consequences. This seems harsh, and it makes us really uncomfortable, I think, to read a text like this. But we were created for community. And when someone in the community chooses to indulge so flagrantly, flagrantly in sin... It's important to recognize that they've already left. Even if they're still physically present, they've chosen a different path, a different route. Sin is always an act of separation from Christ and from his people. And for the church to pretend otherwise doesn't help anyone. Sometimes we simply allow the natural consequences of their choices to take full effect. And finally, if nothing works... We do what Jesus says in Matthew 18 and what Paul says here. 
We treat them as an unbeliever. But how do we treat unbelievers? We share Jesus with them. We love them. We pursue them. We pray for them. We invite them. I love this uh, New Testament scholar, Richard Hayes at Duke University. It just is so helpful here. He writes, church discipline cannot mean that the person becomes a pariah to be shunned by the church. He says it means rather that the person becomes the object of the community's missionary efforts. Let me read that one more time. Church discipline cannot mean that the person becomes a pariah to be shunned by the church. It means rather that the person becomes the object of the community's missionary efforts. This is hard. This is really hard stuff. And I know we all have questions and, and this is stuff we, we don't like to deal with. But we have to remember where we started, that we have to deal with sin or it will deal with us. And I don't want us to miss, in the heaviness of this passage, there is so much hope here. Because in verse 7, Paul referred to Jesus as our Passover lamb, our sacrifice. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is called our Passover lamb. And it's such an amazing picture. This means that there is no sin too terrible, too bizarre, too taboo, no sinner too far gone, that the love of Jesus can't break through and restore See, every one of us is desperate for forgiveness, desperate that God would change us. See, I deserve Jesus' judgment, but that judgment fell on Jesus. I deserve to be handed over to Satan, but Jesus was handed over in my place. He was destroyed so that we can be restored. He was unmade that we can be remade. He rose again to create a community for broken but restored sinners. And I long for that in the life of our church. We long for that for each other, don't we? I hope we do. Yes, we deal with sin, but praise God that Jesus has dealt with our sin finally and completely for all who believe. And so this morning in confession and repentance, we, we gather around his table to taste forgiveness, to taste hope, to taste restoration. But before we come to the communion table this morning, I want to spend just a moment in quiet confession. And I'm going to have some questions up here on the screen. Um, and maybe just pick one or two of these questions and just ask God to help you to deal with your heart. So I'm just going to give us a minute here and just quietly reflect on those questions.